Welcome to the second season of the Call Her CEO podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Ted Rogers Student Society and highlights the experiences of female identifying entrepreneurs and senior business leaders. My name is Hassan Zamari, and I'm very excited to be hosting the Call Her CEO podcast this season. I'd like to welcome today's guest, Taylor Lindsay Noel. Taylor Lindsay Noel is a 28-year-old entrepreneur from Toronto. 14 years ago, she was a Canadian national gymnast. But in 2008, under the coercion of her coach, she had a devastating accident that instantly paralyzed her from the neck down for life. Since then, Taylor has persevered through adversity and has received a bachelor's in radio and television arts from Ryerson University. She is currently balancing being a motivational speaker, disability advocate, council member of the Premier's Council on Equality of Opportunity, and owner of Cup of Tea Luxury Loose Leaf Teas, which was featured on Oprah's Favorite Things list of 2020. She recently was also announced as the Young Entrepreneur of the Year by the Black Business and Professional Association Harry Jerome Awards, Canada's most prestigious award celebrating Black excellence. So with that, I'd like to welcome Taylor to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you today. I'm very excited to have you join us today as well. So before we get off onto all the great stuff you're working on right now, I think it would make sense to kind of start off with your experience as a national team gymnast and what eventually led to your accident in 2008. Of course. So I started gymnastics when I was five years old. Um, I was definitely one of those super overactive children. My mom was like, I need to put this child into something constructive. And so (laughs) that ended up looking like piano, skating, gymnastics, and ballet all at once. Very quickly, I learned that I was not super graceful. And so I dropped ballet um, after about a year or two. Skating, I think I dropped after the first year. I was awful. But piano and gymnastics were things that I definitely had an affinity for. Fast forward a couple of years, I was asked to be a part of an elite program, which meant we trained 25 and a half hours a week. So I actually did more gym than I did actual school, but it was a very specialized program uh, that was so great because like going to school with all of your best friends, there's like 50 kids in total, super fun. And it allowed me to be able to travel, do the sport that I love and do my education all at once. When I was about 11, I was asked to be a part of the national team, which was a huge deal for me because it meant that the national coaches saw Olympic potential within me. And that is the holy grail of any athlete is to be able to go to the Olympics. So I was on the national team for several years leading up to my accident. But on July 15, 2008, I went to a regular day of training and my coach for at least six or seven years, um, he approached me to do something I had never heard of before um, on the high bar. And back then, YouTube wasn't what it is now. So when people ask me, why didn't you look ask for a YouTube video? I'm like, that wasn't a thing. (laughs) That wasn't really a thing back then. Um, But I did ask him if people have done it before because I hadn't seen it, which was very rare to not know a skill. And he just kept gaslighting me, telling me people have done it, people have done it. And I cried. I didn't want to do it. But after about an hour, I broke down and I was like, okay, I'll just try it. And unfortunately, the second time I attempted the skill, I landed head first and broke my neck and that severed my spinal cord, which left me paralyzed from the chest down. So on, yeah, on July 15th, 2008 was the last day I had a quote unquote regular body and my life hasn't been the same ever since and I know like that age it's so easy to kind of be manipulated especially Mm -hmm. by you know someone who's in a position of power over you and I'm sure you were like 
super excited to, you know, potentially compete in the Olympics and you just want to kind of do whatever you can to get to that spot. And I think exactly. that's, that's what led him to, you know, being able to course you like that into what was not safe and, you know, really change your life. So because, you know, you, you weren't born into this disability and it was something mm-hmm. that you kind of had to learn to live with, what was the rehabilitation process like after that? Um, great question. I was at Sick Kids Rehab for three weeks. I had surgery on my neck the same day. They put pins and screws in my neck um, to try to stabilize it. I had this thing called a halo installed on my head, which if you've ever seen Mean Girls, it's a thing at the end of the movie where when Regina George gets hit by the bus, that thing yeah. she wears to prom. Um, I actually had that myself too. And I wore that for seven weeks. It was awful. And then I was at Lorby Kids Rehab for 19 months, actually a very long time. Um, and there every single day I would do physiotherapy a couple times a week. I would do occupational therapy just to try to get back as much movement as my body would allow, which I mean, isn't very much because I am considered a quadriplegic for people who don't know what that means. I wouldn't expect most people to know what that means, but essentially it means that you have paralysis full or partial in all four of your major limbs. So that's my arms and my legs. So yeah, it's, been a very extensive it was extensive time and I continue to do therapy twice a week um now but that was kind of like what it was like the right afterwards Mm -hmm. and I'm sure then that you noticed kind of whether it was going to school or just in public in general the difference in like accessibility from from your life before so what, mm-hmm. what was the challenges in advocating for, you know, accessible spaces and making sure that you were represented basically in, in the spaces that you held? It's one of those things that you don't really realize it until it becomes your reality. Mm-hmm. At 14 years old, I don't think about, you don't think about accessibility within a city, within stores, anything like that. But immediately afterwards, you're forced to take note of it. And what I found was that although we are such a progressive society, it isn't as accessible as you would think. And just simple things like going on a sidewalk and then all of a sudden the sidewalk at the very end after you've been on it forever doesn't have like a slope ramp where you can get off and you have to go all the way back and go on the road, which is dangerous because you can't get off the sidewalk. And um, just those little things, how many restaurants, stores are not accessible but the, in the biggest thing, which, I mean, I've been advocating ever since. And um, one of the biggest things that I advocated for was when I went to Ryerson, actually, my building at the time didn't have a, an accessible washroom that was suitable mm-hmm. for anyone outside of a manual chair. So the washroom would have like an accessible sign on it, but the actual washroom stall was not bigger. And so myself and my mom actually advocated and got this beautiful bigger bathroom built inside of God's that building called it's the one that's right across from the grocery store Rogers Rogers yeah communication the RCC that's it that's why I called it um and if you go into it now there is a pull-down bed off the wall there's Mm -hmm. a Hoyer lift in there it's fully accessible and that's because we advocated for it and our reasoning for it was that you know although they think of it as a big expense now I'm like this is going to give someone 
beyond just me, years after me, this will give someone the freedom to be able to feel comfortable to go to school knowing there's a washroom they can use. People don't think about those things, but that is a barrier that is huge. And I was very happy and proud to be able to leave that there at Ryerson. Yeah, because I'm sure it's how like it helped not just you, but like generations mm-hmm. to come. And exactly. today, I think if you if you would see that there would be like an area of a school that is, you know, so large that that's not accessible like that, it would be a big issue. So it yeah. was good that they they fixed it while they could then. And yeah, this is not really comparable. But uh, when my youngest brother was born, I had to, you know, take him places with like this heavy stroller, right? And mm-hmm. some places, yeah. it's very difficult to navigate. And obviously, a stroller is not the same thing. But it got me thinking that like, well, well, what do people do if they can't, you know, get into this building other any other way? Yep. So it's definitely, you know, putting yourself in that mindset you you notice a lot of things that you you normally would have the privilege of not noticing yeah um, yeah and so kind of leading into you mentioned Ryerson I wanted to ask what really persuaded you to you know make the decision of pursuing um, a degree in radio and television arts at Ryerson great question so when I was in high school um so I did one year of high school before my accident and I was mm-hmm. obviously like quote unquote, the jock, you know, the athlete girl, whatever. And then mm-hmm. I disappear for like a year and a half and no one knows what happens to me. And then I come back, I'm in a wheelchair and everyone's like, what? Wait, what? I was so confused. Mm-hmm. And I was also confused. I was in a space and time where you're, you know, you're, you're young teenagers. There's so many different changes happening in your body just naturally. So many identity crises is happening. And so I go from being Taylor, the gymnast to Taylor, just Taylor. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know who I was without this identity attached to me. And so in trying to find myself, I decided that I wanted to join like student council. Um, So the first year I was a student rep. And then by my last year, I was actually president. But in that process, it allowed me to interact and just like start to discover myself as a person. And one of the things I realized that has always been this underlying passion is media communicating. And so I had a media arts teacher who was like, you know, you have, you're really good at this. He got me doing the morning announcements. And he's like, there's this program at Ryerson. Uh, It's a radio and television arts program. It's like very prestigious and Mm -hmm. like all the best come from it. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to get in. And he's like, you know what? It's extremely hard to get in. You need to have a good resume to get in. And he's like, if you start doing these things now, I guarantee you, you'll get in. And so I just started throwing myself into as many things as I could. And next thing you knew, I was applying and getting in. And I was so shocked <laughs> that I got accepted. But it truly was a great time. I, at the time, I wanted to be an entertainment reporter. I obviously didn't end up there. But um, it was, I, I, I look back at my experience in time with the utmost joy. And I do use so many facets of my things I learned at Ryerson um, in my job and career today, uh, mm-hmm. it just in a different way. It's, it's weird, but it's, it actually worked out. I, I mean, I feel like I know so many people who are doing things very different from what they actually pursued in university, but a lot of the skills, as you mentioned, are transferable. Um, and so I know that you later went on to start a podcast, which also would be kind of related to that radio and television arts. So what was the experience on starting that? Exactly. I I had um, one of the courses we took in school was radio production. 
Mm-hmm. And so in doing so, or, or yeah, the 3D production. And then one of the projects we had to do was to do a podcast episode. And in making a podcast episode, I was like, you're me. And I was just getting into podcasts in general outside of school. And mm-hmm. so I was like, you're telling me that I could talk to people. And one day someone will pay me to do this. Like My I can be paid <laughs> to talk. Like the concept of it was like, this seems like the best thing in the entire world. And yeah. so I was like, okay, I, I, and I, I guess I did have an entrepreneurial mind from the beginning. Cause I was like, if I'm going to talk, I need to be able to find sponsors easily. And I'm like, if I interview someone over like a cup of tea or a cup of coffee or something like that, I could probably get a tea sponsor and that might lead to something else. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to call it tea time with Tay because I love alliterations. And I also, in my daily life, like my best conversations in my house and my life have happened at my mom's island over a cup of tea. Um, Now in my older years, over a glass of wine, but those conversations are just so organic. And so I called it Tea Time with Tay and it was a really great experience. I got to interview people who I wanted to, like the stories that I felt were important and yeah, it just kind of stemmed and snowballed from there. You know, it's really funny because when I first um, like saw your story online and mm-hmm. I, I was interested in having you for the podcast, I was like, you know what? We should name this episode Tea Time with Tay. And then, Do it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I, I searched more and then I found the your podcast and I was like, oh, she beat me to it. <laughs> but it is it is such a great name. Um, it fits, and, it fits, right? It just yeah, and it really together. like alludes to you know, the creation of your business, which you later Mm -hmm. did. Uh, And I guess that's a great segue into that. So you mentioned that in your podcast, you know, it was kind of something where tea brought you comfort and always there's these great conversations that happen over a cup of tea. Mm -hmm. So how did that lead to, you know, the establishment of tea luxury loose-leaf teas? So going back to that kind of entrepreneurial mindset, I made it a point to try to drink a cup of David's tea in every single episode. And I would talk about the beginning, like saying like, oh, today, before I get into the interview, like I'm drinking a nice cup of like blueberry jam. It has these notes, like just really trying to highlight the brand mm-hmm. um, and, you know, with the hopes of working with them. And I eventually, after I had quite a few episodes under my belt, I reached out and I was like, hey, I know I'm small, but like. I would love the opportunity, even if it's just free in exchange for free product to promote your brand. And mm-hmm. I never heard back. And I was really, really sad about it. I was sad about it because when I spent like thousands of dollars a year with them, just naturally as a consumer a year, like literally thousands. And then on top of it, I was talking about it a lot. And so I was like, you know what? If they don't want me, I will make my own tea and do it by myself. And be able to promote my own team, maybe make a dollar or two on the side until I got an actual sponsor. Like it still wasn't the goal to have a business um, per se. It was kind of like maybe can like maybe one or two sales every episode. That'd be cool. And in doing so and getting down that rabbit hole of like, what is it? Because I have no business experience at all. Like literally no experience. I typed into Google one day how to start a tea business. And I every step of the business that is how I figured it out. And 
in doing that, I knew that if I've ever done anything in my life, I grew up in a sport and in a gym where at the very end of the gym, there was this huge sign that said in the pursuit of excellence. And I think if you have that ingrained in you from such a child, your childhood, it kind of naturally transformed into my business. And I knew I had to do it big. I knew I had to do it well and be different. And I wanted to fill in my opinion, a void of a luxury space that was also approachable and modern. And I think, I think we nailed it. I think I'm very confident in saying I'm proud of what came from rejection, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, And now looking back at it, that was one of the best things that ever happened to me because I would, if they had sent me one bag of tea, I would have never started a cup of tea. And now that cup of tea is my everything. It's insane. Like I'm, I'm so grateful for being ghosted. <laughs> yeah, well, I would say it's their loss because you know yeah. one of the most notable achievements of Cup of Tea is that you guys made it to Oprah's favorite things of 2020 list. So, yeah, what was is. your reaction to that? It was, I mean, first it was confusion because yeah. I had my entry on July 15, 2008, but in July 15, 2020. On that same day, I got um, an email from Oprah's team being like, we found you online. We would love to test one of every item you have in consideration for the December issue. And it just didn't feel real because in everything I've ever done, Oprah has been a facet of my life when I didn't have a lot of time to watch TV when I was younger because of Jim, but um, I would always rush home to watch Oprah with my mom. I've only ever subscribed to one magazine. Like I'm a millennial. Like I know I'm older than you guys, but like I'm a millennial still. And I, you don't subscribe to magazines. That's like not a thing anymore, but I've always only ever subscribed to one magazine. It's O Magazine. When I applied to Ryerson, I put in my application letter that I wanted to be a combination of Ellen, Maya Angelou and Oprah. And so she's always been there like motivating me. And so to have our team reach out on that date specifically, go through weeks of testing, eventually send the product to her for her to love it and then choose it was not only life-changing, obviously, for my business, but it's an extremely humbling and full circle moment. And just like, I think proof, at least to me, that like God, the universe, everything really does work in your favor. And you might not understand your journey at the time, but now it makes a lot more sense to me. Yeah, I'm sure it was like a huge, like validating moment, especially the date coincidence. Exactly. It was extremely validating. And like for it to happen less than two years into my business was like, whoa, like if I ever, because at the beginning of that year and beginning of 2020, I actually had considered shutting down my business. So for like a couple months later, for Oprah to be like, this is amazing Um, out of all the businesses that could have been chosen in the world like it's very validating and I was like okay maybe I am doing something a little bit right yeah for sure and so like despite all of these you know great achievements I'm sure you know being an entrepreneur who is not just okay female first of all because Mm -hmm. entrepreneurs do face barriers but a woman of color and disabled Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. feel that people often when you're having conversations with them they either, you know, underestimated you or, you know, kind of had that 
kind of stigma about your identity as an entrepreneur and all the great things that you achieved. Absolutely. I I still deal with that even after all of the, you know, press and quote unquote success we've had. Mm -hmm. Um, Being Black, female and disabled is the like the triple whammy. Like I really, truly can't think of much more that could be tacked onto there to make me more of a minority in the sense of business. Like when you think of business, you think of like the white businessman. I'm not represented. Even if I say like, oh, there is Black representation. We have the Oprahs of the world. We we have the incredible female CEOs, but Black, female, and disabled is rare. Yeah. And so um, I often get, you know, the, oh, like, who's your team? Or who is a team of people that helped you start your business? Or who, like, okay, yeah, you're the face of the business, but like, who runs it? I still get calls today where people being like, can I talk to like your upper person? And I'm like, it's me. Like, it's me. I've had to get comfortable with reaffirming that like, this is me. And I don't have to, I don't have to apologize. Like, just because you are small minded and can't imagine someone like who looks like me, and it has my experiences being able to run a business, that doesn't mean that it's not possible. It may not be possible in your reality, but in the reality of life, I am the person who did this and I'm very proud of what I've been able to accomplish. And so I will continue to be as much of a representation of that in every opportunity that I can. Like I have no problem in in saying we're a Black founded and owned female founded and owned and disabled founded and owned business. And that's just who I am. And I hope that it helps other people feel like they can do it too. Because yeah, especially with the disability factor, um, Mm -hmm. a lot of people in the community don't feel like they could, but I know that they can. For sure. And I feel like in the business community or just in media in general, like there is more advocation for diversity, but you know, mm-hmm. just enough diversity, you know, maybe like one like black person here or there, a person of color here or there, or maybe someone who's disabled, but you know, all three you mentioned being female, black, and disabled, people are not, I don't think they're comfortable yet with like they still need to rewire their brain that, you know, that's possible. Not just is it possible, but it's possible to excel as an individual, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. so I'm sure you're really setting the stage for many more people after you to come and to do, you know, what what they would wish to do, whether that's in business or in other fields. And so kind of moving on into your business formula, I noticed on your website that uh, a portion of the proceeds from like the tea products actually are donated to CAMH. And so mm-hmm. that's super great. And I wanted to know, especially with a small business, Donating some of your proceeds can be like, it could be a hit on the business. So what really led you to to make that decision? It was a decision that I made right from the very beginning. Like on the very first day we launched, it it was a component of our website. Um, And when I tell people, you know, I'm very upfront that we say like, it's like, it's a dollar, right? It's a dollar from every starter kit that we sell. It's not everything. It doesn't cut into our bottom line but it's a dollar more than a lot of other businesses are willing to give. Um, and we do that. So we donate, we donate from our silver starter kits, but um, as of last year, we also do our um, gold starter kits as well. 
And our all black everything bundle, it actually donates money to Black Lives Matter, but specifically talking about Cam H, I knew that there had to be a charitable component. And in thinking of the charities and causes that mean something to me, the easiest answer would have been spinal cord injury research. But I wanted to, I wanted to pick a charity and a cause that was relatable to everyone. Um, I think in the future, I want to have my own charity foundation um, specific to spinal cord research. But for now, mental health struggles affects one in every four people, whether directly or indirectly. Like everybody knows someone who has some kind of mental health struggle. And I think it's something that is becoming less stigmatized right now, but it still needs a lot of attention, work, resources. And for me, the hardest part after my accident was dealing with the mental health aspects of it. And uh, instead of the physical, which I think surprises a lot of people, because growing up Caribbean and um, I'm Jamaican and I'm half Jamaican, half Trinidadian, but I, it's not something we talk about in our culture. And I feel like I had the most incredible family and friends, but I don't, I didn't know how to feel comfortable talking about that journey And I don't want the next generation of Caribbean or any other culture where that's not something we talk about. It's kind of like closed behind doors. Um, I don't want that to be a thing. I want it to be talked about and handled so that kids and other people don't feel alone um, in that journey. So that was the reason why I chose KMH. They do incredible work. And um, I think it also helps people feel like they're doing, I mean, people like to feel good too, right? Everyone loves to feel good while they're buying something if you can. And that's just the way that we've been able to incorporate it into the business. But it really does mean a lot to me. Like it's very important. Yes, for sure. I know that Camich does amazing work because um, the Ted Rogerson Society actually um, works closely in supporting a lot of their initiatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's interesting that you mentioned about the mental health aspect of your rehabilitation process and how that was in some ways the same level of difficulty or even more difficult for you than the actual physical rehabilitation. Because like, if you think of it, you you mentioned how at the age of the accident, it's already like such a crazy time because you're trying to find your identity with your peers, with school, with what you want to do in the future and everything. And then you had kind of built yourself as as a gymnast, you know, very active. And then that kind of all flips around and you have to re go through that process again of finding your identity. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I, I think it's super great that you put so much emphasis on mental health initiatives um, in your business model. And, and I can't wait to see the day where you get to establish your own <laughs> core research uh, organization or charity so that's super great as well um, yeah and so moving on a bit this is uh, a little bit related to everything you mentioned so far so through all of these experiences how important was you to have a reliable support system with you to in in, in the difficult challenges that you had encountered I say in any time I've ever asked a question it was absolutely imperative and vital I don't even think my family and friends understand the gratitude and the weight I hold to them I if you know myself and my inner circle like I love the crap out of my people like I am so 
defensive. Like I want to constantly cradle them and just like give them everything because without them, I would not be here. And I don't say that like as like a token statement, like I mean it, I would not be here if it wasn't for them. So the biggest thing that they did, which helped me through some of the darkest times was never treating me differently. A lot of people will cradle you and coddle you and, you know, kind of keep you in that space. But my friends and family were always like, Taylor, you're still Taylor. You may be sitting down right now, girl, but like, you're still you. And we have the same expectations and hopes and dreams for you. So don't ever give up on that. And I, it's exactly what I needed. And I think it's a reason why we're so close, specifically talking about my friends. Like we have a kind of relationship and closeness that is so unique and so special because as much as everything happened to me, it also happened to my family and friends. Their lives changed that day too. Everything, every get together would have to be centered around where can Taylor go? Is this good for Taylor? And I don't discount how hard that was of an adjustment for them as well. And for them to continue to be there for me, keep up with me and not give up on me was extremely, extremely great. So I think I know everyone says it, but I truly have the best friends in the world and best family in the world. I couldn't do anything without them. Well, I, I hope they they hear this or, or they I know I give them so much I give them so much tech in my daily life. Trust me, like they'd be like, oh my God, like where's this Taylor? But like they they know, they know it for sure. Yeah, We're very, very close. Yeah, sometimes when you're super close to people, it could be like cringy. I know. Oh my God. They would be like, Taylor, what are you saying? Those things. Mm -hmm. But but you know it and they probably know it too, deep in their their hearts. (laughs) But yeah. Um, And so before we move on to the uh, rapid fire session Mm -hmm. of the the interview, Um, this is really funny but I had actually seen you on tv not not a long time ago on one of our family's favorite shows it was family feud Canada so I I really wanted to ask what was your experience like on that show and you guys did pretty great on it too oh thank you um well you know it's funny my cousin just kind of hit me up one day out of the blue and he's like would you ever go on family feud and I was like heck yeah I would and he's like, okay, but do you want to apply? And I'm like, oh God, of course I'm going to be the one to have to apply for all of us. But um, we knew that we wanted to be a group of cousins and go in. Unfortunately, one of my cousins, he got COVID uh, two days before we did it. So he had to switch him out with someone up with uh, my, my cousin's fiance. But it was a, such an incredible experience. Like I watch Family Feud every single night. And so I definitely was one of those people going into it where like, I see it on TV all the time. Like, I'm going to get it. I'm totally right. But it's a whole other experience when they're there in person. Uh, The lights, the cameras, uh, the nerves. And Mm -hmm. we definitely had some really funny moments, uh, some like slip ups from some of my cousins. I won't say how we did in general, but it was an incredible experience. Uh, What a lot of people don't know, though, is that I got I got sick. I had food poisoning halfway through one of the one of the episodes and um I was dying like literally like felt like I was dying but looking back at it now is an experience I'll never forget and yeah it was so great and we had such good reception from everyone who saw it um and it was a great bonding experience for myself and my cousins because that was actually the first time I saw some of my cousins since the pandemic started we had been so good about COVID 
and I hadn't seen them in like over a year and a half, even though we live in the same, like they live in Oakville, I live in Toronto. Um, so it was really great to see them and something we'll always remember. Yeah, for sure. And despite the the food poisoning, you guys did really well and it was funny as well and entertaining. So, so that's great. And so to kind of tie everything together, how, what is one piece of advice that you would give to, to our audience about overcoming adversity, whether that's a life-changing accident or food poisoning on family <laughs> food, what would you say is like one tip that you would give? I think that's something that's kind of become my, my statement. I've seen it. I've said it a couple of times before, and I think it's something I'm going to continue to, to push out there. Um, but it would be, there is so much life after tragedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it is an accident at 14 years old, whether it's cancer, having a family member die, like everybody goes through tragedy. Like it's in the inevitable part of being human. We all go through something, but just reminding people that there is life after tragedy. You can laugh again. You can smile again. You can rise up in some way, shape or form again. Like I'm not I'm not walking and I'm not doing some of the things I thought I would be doing in my life, but like, I am happy. I am in a happy space. I have an incredible business that I'm so proud of, the best family and friends, an incredible uh, boyfriend. And just like, I just feel really blessed in so many ways. And I think that's the proof of like, not giving up on yourself and continuing to push even after tragedy. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank you so much for your really insightful answers. And I know that I took a lot of value from, from our discussion and I'm sure that the audience has as well. And so to end it off kind of on a bit of a lighter note, we'll start mm-hmm. with our rapid fire questions. Yeah. So, as you guys probably know, it's 10 questions, super fun, super casual. And so are you ready, Taylor? I am so ready. I love rapid fire questions. Okay, so to start it off, what is your favorite flavor of tea? Ooh, Nam's Berry Delight from Cup of Tea, obviously. Okay, you guys heard it. Everybody order it right now. <laughs> so good. It's so good. So number two, what is one of your pet peeves? Loud chewers. Oh, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Okay, what is your favorite song at the moment? Ooh, uh we don't talk about Bruno from (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a lot of people can relate to that I sing it all the time my my boyfriend's probably gonna roll his eyes if he hears this but yeah Yeah, no I I use my little brothers as an excuse but Uh, I've watched it twice by myself yeah for sure (laughs) uh okay so if you could live in any other country where would you choose and why Barcelona Spain easy oh I really want to go to Barcelona too it's beautiful I literally am going to live there one day I know it have you visited before I have. I have. And I fell in love with the city. Yeah, I would want to go partially also because I'm a huge soccer fan. And so there you go. then. So number five, who is your celebrity crush? (laughs) Oh, uh, Idris Elba. Oh, yes. You know, (laughs) you would really make a great James Bond. He has to be James Bond. I'm like banking on it. Yeah. Uh, What is the best thing you've purchased in the last year? I just purchased an espresso maker um a DeLonghi espresso maker it's gonna be red I'm super excited about it it's on the way and um yeah my my boyfriend's obsessed with coffee and so Mm -hmm. I'm excited for him to just like make coffee for us and it's so beautiful I'm so excited 
Nice. So, so you're obsessed with tea and he's obsessed with coffee. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. And what is your favorite season? Summer, easily. Summer, for sure. And we could use some summer right now. With, Please. With some other <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite thing to eat with tea? Ooh, um, anything, anything, literally anything. Mm-hmm, for sure. Honestly, mine, like sometimes I just want something like decadent. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. What is your spirit animal? Oh, penguins. And the reason why is because they are so resilient. They have the hardest lives ever. And the women are like badass in in their colony. So I love penguins. Those are all very great reasons. (laughs) I was just going to go for like something cute, but but that's a great (laughs) answer. And so lastly, what was your favorite subject in school? Funny enough, it used to be math before my accident, but after my accident, it was really hard. So I'd say media art studies. Nice. Okay, well, that's a wrap on that. I would like to extend a huge thank you, Taylor, for joining us today. It was great chatting with you, and it was really great also learning more about your journey um, and very inspirational as well. Thank you so much. This was so great. And I, like I said, love everything we're Arson and um, I appreciate you guys having me on your podcast. That's great. Thank you. I'd also like to thank our amazing podcast coordinator, Tina Chan, who works for Magic Behind the Scenes, as well as the Ted Rogers Student Society for making this podcast possible. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Make sure to stay tuned to our Instagram at Podcast or our website, trssociety.ca slash call-her-ceo for the next episode of the podcast. See you next time.